Smart Council is a joint production of Multnomah University, Alternative Behavioral Therapy, and New Pattern Counseling. Welcome to Smart Council, the secret lives of practice managers. Smart Council provides perspectives and resources on spirituality, mental health, addictions, relationships, and trauma to providers and students. I'm Reese. I'm Joshua Moore. And we are with our very friendly guest, Ted Redmark. How you guys doing? We're well, thanks. How okay, are you? Great to see you. Good. This is great. This is actually our first time back in the studio after our holiday break. So I guess this makes it season 1.5 or yeah, something like that. Yeah, it's also felt like about a month or so. I think it's been yeah. at least that. Yeah. So a little bit of a break there, yeah. Yeah, which was nice. Breaks are good. We highly advocate. I'm so glad of, it's a new year. <laughs> <laughs> We're doing a lot of editing at home, though. For sure. <laughs> yeah. Yes, there's always, always projects. Here's a here's a thought question, discussion question, because we like to talk about stuff. Uh, what is everybody reading lately, whether or not it's related to counseling or social work? Anything by Richard Rohr right now. So tell us about <laughs> Richard Do tell. I'm Well, I met him. Um, gosh, it was in October. You met and him? I did. I had lunch. Oh, with my goodness. Him, which wasn't planned. I'm turning green. <laughs> I was at a conference in Albuquerque with about 300 men and got in line at the buffet table, and uh, he was behind me, and next thing you know, we're having lunch. We ended up talking about the Enneagram. So, of course. Which was fantastic, because I knew my number, my wife knew her number, and I, I told him what our numbers were, and he said, hey, do you mind if I share a little advice with you about those numbers and being married? <laughs> and of course, I said yes. Of course. <laughs> Let me tell you how good your But that is. might be a different podcast. So, tell sure. us what the Enneagram is, for those who don't know. Oh, you would ask me that. So, Sorry. the Enneagram is from ancient times. I hate to call it a personality test, because it just, it's so much it's better sort of like than personality tests. The proto-personality the, the proto personality Well, you know, it's been around a long time, but it's yeah. kind of making a comeback, and it's, it's loved by Mystic, for sure. But it's basically this, this kind of circle of nine numbers with different personality traits, and it's really the only time I've ever been involved in kind of a personality description thing where I felt like it actually got who I was. I'll, mm -hmm. I'll tell you my number later. Okay. Um, I'm a little jealous and really excited, and we should definitely talk about Richard Rohr sometime. And if anybody <laughs> knows him and if he wants to come on our podcast, please <laughs> Someone about I'll, I'll see what I He's can do. He's always welcome. <laughs> Our listeners probably have contacts. Right. So I'm reading, I'm actually finding time to read lately, which makes me feel really good about myself. Um, the, the book In My Bag, it's a book about ancient African spirituality and social justice. But the book I'm actually really excited about, and Ted, you might be into this too, uh, I picked up a, a novel. It's called Who Fears Death by Nidhi Okorafor. And I picked it up specifically because I, I'd heard that this fiction author did some funky things with timelines and narrative. And uh, I'm just, I'm loving it. I'm loving the, the narrative style, the story. It's set in Africa. It's about um, mm. an African girl who grows up in that village. And I'm early in the book, but apparently she has some superpower That's or something. Awesome. Uh, so it's it's really delightful. It's, well, as you know, I'm reading 50 books this year. Well, are, at least that's what I'm planning to do. We'll yes. see how it ends up. I didn't know that about you. But I'm taking all kinds of recommendations. Wow. And my, my list isn't full yet. So okay. I have that. recommendations I'll give you off Yes, that'd be great, yes. Josh. Thank you. So I, I, this is probably the, I am loving this novel the most I've loved any novel since I read uh, Kafka on the Shore by Haruki Murakami. Uh, so, but anyway. Excellent. Um, I'm reading two things. Right now I'm reading The New Codependency by Melody Beattie. She's the original author of Codependency No More. Is That's there a new 
new code. codependency, sort of. Am I about to go back, um, back into therapy to address <laughs> the new codependency? Uh, kind of, not really. You, you kind of have to read it, and it is a little bit more of an advanced take and a more of a broad perspective. Okay. Um, and I have mixed feelings about it. it it's, now, is it, it written kind of from clinical perspective, or is it more like layperson kind of? I mean, you will relate to it as a clinician, um, but it, it, she is not a layperson, so she relates really well to clients, and her clients relate really yeah. well to her experiences. But she is she, but she's clinical enough to you know keep clinicians engaged and thinking that she might be, but she's she's yeah. not a therapist. Um, but she's brilliant. And so the new codependency is more addressing some of the things that the first couple books may have left out and talking about what do you do after you've been working on it a few years, things like that. So, I mean, it's not a huge part of the book, but even talking about you know uh, you know how codependency is kind of something that just happens and is present. And so it's really talking about the extremes and what's different than uh, natural codependency that might exist in marriages or trying to get your kid to college. Like healthy like, codependency Right, which they don't unhealthy. usually talk about. Oh, you know? yeah. But that's not a, I've always wondered that's that. not a big part of the book, but it is. Like we want people to be more dependent on each other, but yeah. then there's codependency, <laughs> right? right? Yeah. Which is like, whoa, yeah, that's I, too far. Don't go that far. We connected, <laughs> but don't you dare rely on them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or I use the term yeah, interdependent and sure. instead of dependent uh, or codependent. That's, that's the word. But apparently now I can say new, Well, there's new, even, you can go a little further and say, well, is there codependence? I just recommend reading it. I still like the original a lot, and the original is still my favorite book. I'm also working through a lot of curriculum for Dr. Amen's brain health coach certification. That one's got me really, really busy just because the bonus material is like yeah. 700 pages long. Light reading. I'm not even tested on the bonus material. <laughs> so, right, right, right. I've got like 2,000 spec scans to study. So. <laughs> okay, well, I think you win for smart points tonight. <laughs> That's exciting, and I'm glad we're getting to read some things. I think it does make us smarter a little bit. So, uh, if, any, so if listeners have great book recommendations that are about counseling or not about counseling, uh, we would definitely love to hear them. You can leave them in the comments. So, Ted, I'm really glad you're here. Thank and you. It's great to be here. Thanks for coming back. You got it. So, do tell, what is your corner of the counseling, social work, mental health world? Yeah, probably nothing like you've talked about so far. So, I have to say almost on a daily basis where I work that I'm not a clinician because I work with 45 of them, and I'm not a therapist. So a lot of people don't know what I do, and sometimes I don't know what I do, to be honest with you. I'm a practice manager, and so the idea is I manage the behavioral health clinic, the behavioral health practice. Um, it's a lot more common, I think, in physical health. You, you see it at places like Kaiser or Willamette, OHSU, or things like that, especially when there's, when there's small community clinics that sort of operate independently and autonomously. Okay. And at, at which clinic do you work? I work at LifeWorks Northwest. They're in Tri-County area here in, uh, in Oregon. They do mental health addiction and prevention services, and they've been around quite a while, like five decades. So, wow. yeah. So it's like, I, what I like to kind of describe it as is the business operations of the clinic. And I have a counterpart, a clinical manager, who would basically run all of the clinical aspects, all the programs and everything there, and by far has the most staff uh, under her time. But I try to take care of everything that you probably don't want to think about as a therapist. When you yeah, I, I have one of those in my office. A practice sure. manager or a clinical manager? Well, I mean, we're a small clinic, so she does a lot of different roles. Gotcha. All of it. But the person who makes things go away, yep. solves small, tedious problems. Makes things go away. I like that. I get that up. I need to get that on my office. I make things go away. Yeah. All right. I, I want to be careful with the metaphors so as to not overly objectify these really hardworking people. I read them compared to like the, the the feet of a swan who are like frantically moving to keep the swan moving gracefully across. Yeah, no, she's awesome. Yeah, my office manager. Yes. Right. So I, anything, any metaphor with swans going to work. So okay. I like it. Ted, this one. So practice managers, not clinicians, not clinically trained 
experience in the like what is your what is your what is your degree? Yeah, great question. So I have a master's of business administration in nonprofit management, but uh-huh. it's a business degree. Yes. And so uh, I, I I got that with the express purpose of wanting to help nonprofits with business operations. So I got lucky. I got the job that I wanted, and that's where I ended up. That is always fortuitous when you get to get the job you want, A, or B, the job the job for which you went to school, which hopefully you still want by the time you graduate. <laughs> right? Yeah. Do tell a uh, what drew you to this particular field uh, instead of, say, being a counselor? Like, I know having sat with you, talked with you, you would probably be a great counselor and you have that kind of personality. What drew you to practice management instead? Well, you know, right after I graduated from here at Multnomah, where you both teach now, right? and did we, any of us graduate together? Did we all graduate well, 2009? Or did we just go to school together? No, I think we were oh, you're a year before. My year took like three years. Okay, I was yeah. working full-time at Rosemont. I took over your Ah, time. that's right. We worked together. And you were one of the best employees in the history of Rosemont. They oh, I don't, know. I don't know about that. I, I heard that. For I don't know if that was true at the end. I had to hear that for <laughs> four years from your supervisor. For four years. Oh well, I'll. I'll, I'll so, yeah, you would. You I'll would take that therapist. word. I'll accept that word. Thank you, Josh. <laughs> yeah. So your question. So what drew you, you know what drew management? me? What drew me to it? You know, I I've always wanted to help people. I worked with Josh for a while mm-hmm. in residential skills and residential treatment and loved it. And as a matter of fact, I got accepted in the MSW program here at Portland State right after my stint at Multnomah. And it was a tidy little offer. I was really excited to take, but. Some Something deep down inside me said, Ted, I don't, I don't think you can be a therapist 40 hours a week. I don't think that you can do that. Mm. And I'm so glad I turned that offer down because it really wasn't for me. I, I really started to look for a way to help people that didn't involve me actually providing direct care because I'm just not wired for it. Yeah. And didn't know at the time that business administration had a nonprofit concentration. I'm not even sure it did at the time, or, or at least not in the Portland area. A lot of people who are interested in stuff like that would go get a master's of public administration or something. But I traveled for a while with my wife, did some other jobs, and, and found this degree at University of Portland right here in my hometown. Like, this is too good to be true. And uh, it really has been uh, fortuitous, as you as you mentioned. The right thing for me at the right time. Excellent. I want to go back a little bit to something you said where you said you were thinking about an MSW and doing social work. And then something inside said, hey, this wouldn't be good for you. You didn't think you could do therapy 40 hours a week. And I'm interested in hearing a little bit more about that. With this context, some of our listeners are, are students, prospective students, considering should I go into the counseling field? the social work field. What would you recommend? What are some things you think a prospective student should consider uh, in deciding, is this field for me? Can I do counseling 40 hours a week? Should I do counseling 40 hours a week? What were some of the things that you thought about in that moment, Share. Well, I think I didn't really know what counseling was. Like a lot of us don't know what the job is when we go get a degree. And and all I would say is anybody who's considering it, spend time with other counselors and spend time shadowing and really know what it is. That's I mean, that's true of any job. It's just something I didn't do a whole lot of at the time and I wish I would have. I think counseling's got to be one of the hardest jobs I have ever seen performed. I mean, it's just remarkable because it takes so much internal buy-in and work to be able to support somebody emotionally in life. And it's something I, I love doing, and I think I do, but I don't do it professionally for my job. <laughs> yeah. So that's the difference. So I, I have a high respect for anybody who goes into, into therapy. But I guess I would also say... If you want to help in that field and don't think you're a therapist or maybe cut out to be a therapist, there are other opportunities. They're not as common. Things like business operations, they do exist, and especially more um, in data analytics. Mm -hmm. Companies like LifeWorks are hiring people to do data visualization, build dashboards, really help understand uh, in kind of a big data way who their clients are, where they're coming from, what the demographics are, what's happening to them in treatment, and, and especially connecting that to outcomes, which is fantastic work if you're interested in that kind of stuff. For sure. There, and there are, I, I would 
say there are, there are a lot of other things to consider um, when considering this field. Because you're right, to be relationally engaged with a person day in, day out, hour after hour, it, it can take a toll and it is tiring. And you know, some people are made for it, they thrive, they figure out tricks to do it and it's great. Uh, and for some people, that, that would be just too taxing for them. So it's good to know that there are other things like the practice management end of things, administrating data analysis, or I'm going to say research. There are some concentrations within counseling, social work, psychology that are more research oriented than providing therapy. So, you know, for the prospective student considering should I do this field, there are a lot of variations that could be available. Yeah, and I think, you know, one of the just really stark realities about life in general is that money is make, what makes the world go round, you know, and, and it, it the same is true for, for therapy. There's still a business side to that. And so what I see my job is as is really helping create an environment where that thing runs smoothly, where that part of the operations doesn't have to be something at the forefront of a clinician's mind when they're trying to help a client, that the insurance and authorizations and all of the things that kind of go into making sure people's Medicaid is prepared and that they have the right things in place to get treatment, that those things are behind the scenes. That's not always the case. Right. It's not a smooth process, but I'm hoping that oh, my work is making it smooth. And Josh, yeah, yeah you know, you run that right. kind of stuff. Well, you know I, that there's a whole piece an to that. manager may not be the same, but she, she, does, she does lots and lots and lots of things. But I know what it's like to not have her. <laughs> I have an office manager too. It's actually, she uh, she stayed home today. I know exactly what you mean. It's yeah. it's they, they do a lot of work behind the scenes. Right. Her and I together are a team. There we cover a lot of different. I bring in more of the, the data piece to the to the whole thing. But she definitely on a day to day basis is really in touch with how that clinic runs. For the therapist to have to run some of these responsibilities, there's shifting gears mentally. It's exhausting. I prefer to get in counseling mode and just see as many clients as is healthy in a day. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but to you know, have too many other responsibilities thrown in, you know, uh, if you're talking about insurance, or you're talking about invoicing, or you're talking about a hundred other small things, coordinating care, it can get slow, and you can get fatigued really easily. Yeah. And a hard time switching between roles. I would definitely agree. I, I worked in two clinical settings before opening my private practice, and in both those settings, there was a whole crew, you know, multiple people handling the, the finances, the booking, the administration, the billing, human resources, and it was really great when I could just you know, say, hey, Teresa, hey, Val, hey, Mel, can you help me? And they would do it, and they were Pass great. It off, yeah. And now it's like, hey, Reese, do this. I'm like, I don't know how to do it. Oh, the joys of running your own business, Reese. It's <laughs> joyful. It's joyful. <laughs> yeah. Joyful. Well, things on the on the healthcare landscape change all the time at federal and state levels. And even the county level here, we know one of our CCOs uh, is closing its doors at the end of this month. And so these kinds of changes, they really impact a clinic's ability to provide services in a financially sustainable way. Clinics go under all the time. And so right, right. that affects actual clients, their therapists who can't show up to work and those well, kinds your of things. Own, the old place that we both worked, Rosemont, was open 100 million yeah. years and it closed rather abruptly yeah. due to some rather quick political changes in funding that yeah. no one really anticipated or saw the outcome. just kind of happened. It unfolded in a different way than they expected. Yeah, exactly. And it was gone. It was gone. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so with, with the knowledge that those sort of quick changes could happen, political yeah. winds flow to and fro, Ted, with where you're at, how much sway would you say you have over the overall longevity of your clinic? How much of That is a great question. Yeah. I mean, and go ahead, you know, puff yourself up or, or whatever, but like, you know, how much hinges on your work to keep the clinic going? Well, there's two answers to that. So I think practice managers are a new thing to LifeWorks. It's, it's, they hired me seven, eight months ago, and it wasn't a concept or a position they'd hired before. They hired me because of a federal pilot called CCBHC, uh, Certified Community Behavioral Health Center. The whole idea is to change the model with how services are paid for, for the better, but it's really based on the collection of a lot of metrics 
that are outcome-based. And getting, getting a, a wrap payment, which is like this subsidy payment on the side, which really helps to pay for all of the fringe things that are going on that, you know, beyond the, the paycheck for the clinician and beyond just the actual therapy, like keeping the building, you know, nice enough to actually have clients into and paying the bills and all that kind of stuff. So in theory, I have quite a bit of influence. In practice, the agency's still kind of learning exactly how to structure itself so that my job and what I bring to the table actually impacts things for the better. Because, you know, if you look at the agency, we're 80% clinical. You know, we have corporate, we have kind of what we do in operations, but we're mostly a clinical organization. So we rise and fall by that arm of the agency. So it's a, it's taken a little bit of time to sort of prove, prove myself slash prove the concept. And I think that they've given it two years to kind of see if it floats. And I see good things on the horizon. But I would say we have some work to do for sure. Because uh, so much of the decisions have always been in a clinical setting and not from an operational or even sometimes financial standpoint. Would it be fair to draw a parallel and say, if in, a, in a, if in a theater context, the the clinicians were were the actors, the practice managers are the directors or the producers. Oh, you have to ask that, re-ask that question. Well, so 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 in a theater context, perhaps um, a, a person might go to see the actor on the stage, the actress on the stage, but that actor actress can only be there because of all of the work and coordination of the director. Producer. Exactly. Yeah, I'm behind the scenes completely. And hopefully uh, holding up and sustaining something that's working, but not really visible to the client in most cases, which is which is how I prefer it. Fair enough. Yeah. And so, so yeah, a lot, a lot does ride on you. I mean, those clinicians, bless them, they're they're amazing, and we and we need them, and we go to the clinic for them. But they they exist in a very complex, supported context that is largely you and your crew. I have a view um, that not everyone has. And my, my colleague, the clinical manager, has that same view, but I have more access to the data to get it quicker. So we share a lot of this information together. And, and with her clinical background, she's able to look at it and see much more than I even do. But I'm able to kind of pull it together and structure it. And that view can look across clients, across caseloads, across clinicians, across teams, across sites, and look for patterns. And those patterns tell you something about outcomes. They tell you something about how clinicians are practicing. They tell you something about the continuity of the clinical models being used. They tell you something about engagement. They tell you something about um, all of these pieces that if you're just looking at your own caseload and your 40 hours of therapy, you're not going to get that view. And that's what's really exciting because as an agency, we're, we're in a learning curve in terms of our own treatment models, treatment modalities, uh, financial models too, to a degree, although those are a little more known. But yeah, we're just able to see so many more patterns and those patterns inform how we practice and ultimately provide better care to the client. Yeah, that sort of perspective seems really alluring, really exciting. Are there observations that you're able to share on like what's what's going on? What are the trends in the mental health field from a practice manager's perspective? Or Oh man, I would love to share about trends. There are so many of them. You know, one, one of the big projects that I'm personally assigned to for the agency is figuring out engagement. Folks come in, usually they are excited about starting treatment and we start treatment with them. And a lot of times at some point they're engaged and then they become disengaged from treatment. And we've kind of have come to accept that as an agency. Like usually we'll open up an auth and that authorization will last for six or six months or a year. And we have a treatment plan that lasts for that duration of time. And there, there's a whole plan in place to see them. And it varies. I mean, it's it's pretty malleable. But at the same time, what we hate to see is a client become disengaged for one reason or another. And I would say that coming into the job, most people's ideas of, of why a client becomes disengaged are, pr are pretty, what I describe it, pretty linear. They became disengaged because they didn't want to come in anymore. 
anymore. They became disengaged because they were done with treatment. In some of the data that we're pulling, we're seeing much deeper, um, more holistic reasons for treatment. Sometimes it's, uh, sorry, for, for disengagement. Sometimes it's actually the client communicating back to the clinician that I'm done, I'm ready to be discharged a little sooner than you thought. And what we do is we, we connect up our disengagement patterns, like number of no-shows, and we connect that up with our outcomes data using one of our programs called ACORN. And so we look at the progress somebody has made and when they disengaged, and oftentimes they're communicating, I've completed 95% of my treatment plan, which is essentially all of it, and I stopped coming in. How are we responding to that? Are we going, no, 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 you have to come in and finish the last two meetings just because? Or are we saying, let's discharge and make a safety plan and send you on your way, and you'll know the number to call when you need us again? A, a healthy goodbye. A healthy goodbye, yeah. Right. Now, that's just one, one option right. we're seeing, but we're starting to dig into all of these different reasons. I mean, there's a ton of reasons people become disengaged. There's tons of barriers out there. One of the ones I'm uniquely interested in, and, and it touches um, our addictions program in a really big way, Reese. A lot of people who are seeking a addiction treatment are also seeking housing. And a lot of the clean and sober housing is is pretty pocketed around the kind of tri-county area. One of the areas that has the most housing, you guys know which which area in the tri-county area kind of has the most housing for clean and sober? I don't. Would you venture a guess? West Washington County, Hillsborough, Aloha. There's the lots most of oxen, lot, lot. We see such a, an increase in the number of people engaged in addiction treatment out there. We weren't sure why. Why are people just flocking over there? Well, we, we suddenly realized all the housing's they out could there. Get housing. That's where the housing's at. And, and the housing is isn't really in my part of town for that. I wish it was, but, but my part of town is Northeast Portland, right along a Martin Luther King Boulevard. A lot of gentrification has occurred there, a lot of population shift, not a lot of clean and sober housing anymore. So things like that, we're just starting to kind of look at the trends yeah. and understand why and where people are moving to and and what and how that's uh, revealing itself in the data and in people's uh, treatment patterns. That seems so useful. I mean, something like addictions treatment will flourish where there is also housing. I mean, go figure. And we, you can see that from the data, but we might have missed, missed that otherwise that's really exciting it seems like and i'm thinking about the the person who's completed 95 percent of their treatment goals and is just ready to go knowing that sort of data seems like it would really empower uh, a truly client-centered person-centered approach when you say well here was the plan but if you you are determining that you are ready to go we can respond to that recognize that's really what we're hoping for i mean and i think one of the reasons i love working at a i work at a site where we see people all day and it's not a corporate office and i like that because Every day I walk in that door, I need to remember this is about the client. In fact, I have to remind myself of that because I geek out on the data a little bit. I geek out on being efficient and and being and workflows and processes and having everything in a row. And, and, you know, treatment and especially community mental health isn't always that orderly. Oftentimes, it's not a straight line. It's just not. Wait, and, it's and not? It's, it's not. <laughs> and it's something I'm reminded of frequently by my coworkers. Right. Um, because I'm the guy who wants everything to kind of go systematic, methodical, and orderly. And that's good. I bring that perspective to the team. But that's not how life works is going to run. And that's good because that's not client focused. We want to be client focused. Every day I see some some heroic work going on between clinicians and clients. I just want to help make that better. We really appreciate your work. I'm getting the impression that our field would, would sink without you. Yeah, I was thinking for a while. Yeah, Josh, you were lost there and thought, what were you thinking? Well, a lot of that, like like having run a clinic that saw about 60 people and trying to do that, um, it's not much compared to, you know, you might be 600 or something for all I know. But it's it, there's a lot. There's a lot of even, there's just a lot of things that have to be done. Administratively, office management, clinical management. We do pre-tests and post-tests. And at one point I decided I want to see what the, dim the trends looked like on my clients. So I did an analysis of everybody who'd ever come in and completed a pre-test and a post-test, figured out who dropped out and why. And I did what, I, what I'm imagining from what you're telling me would be that it took me all day to effectively, and this is my first maybe year or two, I had maybe 22 completed people. <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, I'm thinking about, can you imagine trying to do it for hundreds or thousands? You know, it's just like, whoa, it took me all day to, to get the data and the numbers. And I had to grossly simplify it just so that I could have some idea of, of what kind of success rate we were having and what percentage we were seeing improvements in their scores using the tests that we had. And that was an incredibly satisfying experience, validating experience, and it also showed me where my weak spots were. And so I'm, you know, I'm sitting here thinking about it, going like, wondering if that's what you were doing or that's what your job is. Or, or if, if, you know, seemed like maybe that's the parallel that, that I, I can experience. You're stirring up in me a thought I want to share. Sure. And that is that, you know, one of the unanticipated realizations I had, I think I had it before this job, but this job brought it to the forefront in a new way. And that is that systems can be very oppressive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And not just our human systems, but also our literal IT systems, which a clinic of any scale is going to have. Yes. And they're a fact of life. It's what enables us to have this data and to be able to analyze it. Uh, It enables us to stay organized. But they can very quickly impact client care in a negative way. And I want to minimize and reduce that impact. Right. I think that everybody who walks through the doors at one point or another has been oppressed by a system. They're, they're most of them Medicaid population, they're, which Medicaid's a great thing, mm-hmm. but also it can be a very laborious thing. It can be very tricky. It can be a very hard system to navigate. For a short time when my family was on that kind of insurance here in Oregon, it was it was one of the most complicated things I've ever had to try to figure out, like who to call, Oregon Health Authority or the Coordinated Care Association or the actual Oregon Health Plan insurance for what question. I remember just getting bounced around. So that's never going to go away. Right. But at my clinic, I really want to reduce the harmful impact of oppressive systems and make it as painless as possible. No, when people wake up in the morning and they remember they have an appointment at LifeWorks, I want them to think about it. Ah, I get to go to LifeWorks today. I'm going to feel good while I'm there. You know, there might not even be a cognizant thought. It might just be a feeling, but we want to have like a warm drink in the lobby, friendly staff at the front, smooth process to go see your client, and really the ability to go and do your work and do whatever it is that you need Sounds to like do. the VA could use you. The VA. Yeah, that sounds like another podcast. I'm, I'm a veteran. <laughs> it does. I'm a veteran who's given up on my uh, line of duty injuries, so. Uh, yeah. and, and, you know, and, and I don't want to make it sound like I'm down on systems because they are necessary and they are helpful when configured correctly, but they can very quickly take the place of good client care, as we've all witnessed or even been a part of. We're all consumers of services somewhere, mm-hmm. and I remind uh, our staff of that on a regular basis. We, we all know what good customer service is. Let's try to bring that to the mental health field. And yeah. not that it wasn't already there, but just that we can do better. Right, absolutely. Yeah, I think that's a great perspective. I, I don't think it's something to take for granted either, the idea of good customer service or friendly people, good people skills. It's what counseling is. It's a, it's perhaps one of the most relational industries that there is. And so if we're not able to do relationship well or cultivate a relationally hospitable space well, then yeah. then, there's, then there's a problem. So I love this idea that you're talking about, Ted, of recognizing those systems they're, they're necessary. They can go wrong really easily. But there's things we can do within that to at least be aware of it or to at least be keeping them from getting worse. You know, things like, you know, having the warm drink ready. That, that is really comforting. You know, I'm thinking having somebody kind of easily accessible who knows the answers to your questions, uh, that would be amazing too. <laughs> so Yeah, that's a good one, actually. Um, so Family Care is closing, as you guys know, here in the Tri-County area, yeah. one of our two CCOs. You know, and I've looked and looked and looked at that. At our agency, it's, it's actually not going to be that big of an impact, at least from what I know so far. I'll probably listen to this podcast a six months ago. Oh my gosh, how come I said that? But for a lot of people who have a provider who is Family Care certified and not Health Star certified, that's a big deal. And so 
what we're just trying to do is help get the word out, help have those answers to the questions like you mentioned, Reese, because there's a lot of anxiety around a closure that big. And so suddenly, too, I think we only have like three weeks notice or something. Not like very mi- much Mid-December, notice. they said we're going to close in January, and then I think they extended it for a month. But things like that where they pull out of serving, you know, over 100,000 people. And just like that, you might have to find a new therapist or doctor. Wow. Yeah, it's rough. Yeah, that sounds like an oppressive system. Yeah, it really can turn not, into Not one. a very therapeutic transition right there. <laughs> that's not trauma-informed, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> trauma-informed. You want to talk about That's one training I do have is trauma-informed. Excellent. We put everybody through it, whether you're administrative or not. So yeah, what a great training. That's Brilliant. so good. Um, yes, it seems like a given for the clinicians themselves, but I love that your staff is also getting the trauma-informed care because, let's face it, that your, your front desk staff have clinical interactions because they are often the first people that the clients talk to that they see, and they're the ones that hang out with them when they're elevated in the lot. In the lobby. So you're exactly right. It seems like you've seen this before. A few times. You're, yeah, you're 100% right. So they go through that training. They go through some de-escalation training. We also have something in our agency called peer services, P-E-E-R. And maybe you're familiar with that that model, but people mm-hmm. who into the field because they have a lived experience and they actually go to school for it and get a certification and all that, but they have a background in addiction or a background in mental health or both. It's a phenomenal program. We have lots of peers in our agency. I think over 22 right now at LifeWorks alone, and we're looking to expand that. At the same time, uh, I'm not peer certified, but there's a push at our senior level to have uh, senior managers and executives who identify as peers to be transparent about that. They may not be certified, but if they have lived experience, and a lot of us do. And that, that peer certification or peer training is the trauma-informed training? No, it's a different one. It's okay. one that the, is, is run by the state, and it's so okay. that you can provide services and that you can also bill for case management and, and, and actual services through Medicaid. Interesting. And that's where the certification comes in. And, and most of us at executive level or senior management level aren't going to be certified, but we may still identify as peers because there's important not to have that bar- that us-them barrier, like, you know, that we're here and we're different than you and we're fundamentally um, not on the same level as you or whatever, which is just completely not true. I'm a practice manager. I have lived mental health experience. I've been in the system. I've been to a therapist. I mean, these are all things that we don't necessarily talk about, but there is a way to identify yourself as somebody who can relate and who has been through a similar experience, which is something I, I very much embrace. I really, I really love this idea, and I was very honored to work alongside some some really great peer specialists when I was at Cascadia, and you know, they were you know super hardworking and really friendly, really engaged, very passionate, and you know, they they brought a lot to our team. And and I remember, you know, you talked about that us versus them barrier that absolutely must be reached. And I know fresh out of school, that was one of my biggest revelations too, as I'm working with all of these clients and as I'm listening to their stories about, you know, depression, anxiety, addiction, trauma, and, you know, this or that catastrophe, I'm thinking, you know, like three or four different choices in my life and I would be just where they're at or something, something like that. I, just I, a different set of life circumstances. Or just a different set of or, life circumstances. Yeah, no, I think yeah, that all the Yeah, there's not that much that's different between me and them. And that, I felt like that was really important for me. And so I'm thinking to, you know, our basic counseling or basic ethics course that we all get in the first year of our program, you know, we talk about therapeutic boundaries and self-disclosure and in classical training anyway, there's this push for don't self-disclose, be the blank slate, don't let yourself be in the session so much. And on a, on a app, taken absolutely, and when that's taken hardline, it's, it rubs me a little bit because it feels a little... F- fake and forced and kind of unsustainable. Uh, this approach of softening that barrier seems really good and really healthy. Um, obviously, you do it carefully, but you know, to identify as like, oh, yeah, I have lived experience with depression, with addiction, with this or that. And no, I'm not going to tell you all my grisly details or what I worked through in therapy, but yes, we have gone through some of the same path. Yeah, that's fantastic. Love to talk more about peer services sometime. I think it's a really fantastic yeah. thing. I think we will do that. Okay, so you were talking, Ted, a lot about the data entry and you mentioned the ACORN and that was 
making me think back to when I was a fresh-faced, kind of ignorant, arrogant young therapist. <laughs> I uh, made you think of that, huh? Right, right, right. Yeah, you know, before I got licensed, and then, then everything was better. When I was at Cascadia, there was a system, an, an IT network, lots of data to collect through lots of different forms that had to be done every too many months. And, and at the time, from my perspective then, it felt very oppressive, and it felt very easy, like you noted, to lose the client in the system and you know i could i could cynically feel myself falling into the mindset of like oh these darn clients are getting in the way of my paperwork which never <laughs> felt right yeah, right um, <laughs> just wow yeah now some years later and knowing a little bit more and now hearing you talk you can see how actually that gathering of data is really helpful and when you can see those trends that does bring up these really important insights and there, and there is a lot that you can do with that when it's done well. So I'm wondering if if you were if you were to have pulled me aside four years ago when I was new and really hating all the paperwork to give me a piece of advice or information or therapeutic slap on the head about my attitude toward paperwork, what do you think you might have said? Has the paperwork make, made you a better therapist since then? I've at least gotten better at my paperwork. Oh, <laughs> I love that answer. So for, for paperwork's sake. Right, right, right. There is always room to question those processes. Always. I'm not like loyal to more paperwork or more data, even though I love data. It must serve the client at the end of the day. And I think that's what we have. We have to get away from self-serving, circular processes that are unnecessary, yeah. which is a separate question from the oppression piece. But if it's unnecessary, why are we doing it? Yeah. Why are we doing it? And I think there's a lot of that. I think there's a lot of uh, excess in, in the systems and in our, in our collection. There's stuff we have to collect anyway, because it's required, compliance, st uh, federal, state, all that kind of stuff. And then there are some outcome data that is absolutely imperative being able to measure success. And you know, in, in therapy, I realize that measuring outcomes is going to be squishier than something always purely quantitative. I get that. I get that. But I think that we can't throw that out either. We can't throw out the importance or the focus of measuring success from point A to point B, whatever that is, whatever the treatment plan sets forth as, hey, this is what we're going to work on, and this is how we're going to check ourselves after this period of time. That's a pretty basic concept. in medicine. And I think that we, we have to find a way to allow that to serve us and serve the client. One of the ways that, um, that we don't is we don't analyze a lot of data we do collect. We just collect more. We let a lot of stuff sit static. And I think what we need to do is dig into what we have before we actually start entering more for the heck of it, if that makes sense. That so, makes sense. What I would say to you, Reese, four years ago is that, yes, examine the purpose of everything you do. And if it doesn't have a good purpose, it might need to be thrown out. But most, most of that stuff, I think, especially with regards to outcomes and documentation of therapy, is probably connected to a very noble purpose. You may disagree. Well, <laughs> from where I'm sitting now, I, that, that does make sense. And, and I can see that. And I would, I, I would find myself more willing to participate in it. And hopefully, four years ago, my pre-contemplative self would have at least kept quiet. <laughs> I like it. Yeah, well, in our clinic, we, we do a lot of CBTs, and we have attention-based tests, and we get numbers. And some of the tests, I've used a handful of different ones over the years, simple two numbers. Uh, and those two numbers can be used to really kind of boil down, you know, where they're at with attention. And so it's been actually really fun having, you know, a focus <laughs> that can narrow and simplify your progress down to numbers. Uh, it's not very common. You know, we have the global assessment scale. I think, is that uh -huh. even something they use anymore? Though? I've heard of it. I don't know that we you know, use it. And that seems like it's, it's remarkably broad, and, and, and uh, sometimes it feels... Oh, is that like the GAF score? Maybe that's what I'm thinking. That we used to have? GAF. Yeah, it's been a long time <laughs> since I've done those. Okay. <laughs> I think the GAF left about the same time Axis 2 left. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's what I thought. I'm pretty sure they threw it out. Yeah, I, I wasn't sure, though. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's probably extremely hard to 
to quantify a person's growth. Like, you have two units of health. Like, <laughs> no, there's nothing like this. <laughs> now like, you have one. What did I do? <laughs> how do you quantify a growth that is observable? Yeah. How do you measure that? Um, yeah. How do you quantify that as being better than something else or less than something else? Yeah. Um, I can see that being a challenging job. It is challenging, I, I would say. And it's not always straightforward and always quantifiable. Right. I, I don't, I I d- I don't believe it. I'm too much of a mystic to say, oh, yeah, it's always going to be quantifiable. But enough of it is, and it's necessary in the field. you gotta, you got to show progress. I mean, yeah. you just do. So I would agree both on the it's difficult and it's necessary. From my perspective, having taught beginning counseling students, when I teach them uh, early counseling skills and treatment planning, I, I hammer in the SMART goals. And the smart goals and the smart ah, goals, smart goals. Yeah. and it's elusive. It's hard, you know. And it, and again, again, you, when it's practicum students and they're in a college campus where their sample clients are doing counseling for a class and they don't actually have problems. I mean, they have problems, but not really. <laughs> it's 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 hard and harder and slippery than you know. You could, then you get a lot of people who are like, yeah, I'm depressed and I want to be happy. I'm like, great. How do you translate that into <laughs> quantify happiness? Right, you can't. <laughs> so it's it's tricky. So I have a question for you for you two. Oh, sure. yeah. So I want to know: have you, have you given any thought to any interconnectedness between the mindfulness piece of DBT, dialectical yep. behavioral therapy, which I only brushed up against at Rosemont years yes. ago? I really know not much about. Great place to learn it, though. And and which is an evident evidence based practice. I yes. hear mindfulness yes. is, which means something. And the contemplative movement in spirituality, contemplative prayer movement in spirituality. Do you, do you, have you ever given any thought to their interconnectedness? You might have to define the contemplative prayer movement for me, just to be sure. I don't know that I could, but I think I would say just the reading I've done with Richard Rohr, okay. the idea of being fully present mm. and, and bringing your mind into a place that's neither future or past, mm. but right now, and then meditating on something uh, I'm, I'm, for lack of a better word, I'm going to say positive. Yes. For a specific period of time. Right now, I think it's like everybody's saying, like, if you meditate on something positive for 15 seconds, it, there's actual evidence in your brain that it attaches there. In my reading around contemplative prayer, and then in my experience with mindfulness, it seems like there might be a book there waiting to be well, written. I, I was actually just thinking that I could talk for a half hour on that by myself. <laughs> I was hoping you could. <laughs> so. I, I, would, I would read that book. Are we grabbing beers after? Is that what we're doing? Yeah, absolutely. Sure. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, yeah, there is there is a lot to that, and in neurophysiology, there's, there's a lot of parts to it, and, and even just the concept of truth. You know, think about in my field, we're talking about biosignals in the brain and what's interactable and and what what's meaning there, and and how somebody discovers something and they they find evidence, and it's not enough to convince their peers. But before they have enough evidence, another research group in Germany comes up with the same conclusion, calls it different names, and goes on a speaking circuit. And then we bump into each other. And they're, they're presenting on something that's going by a totally different name, but it sounds exactly like what we practice. And, yeah. You know, and yeah, right. pretty soon we're like, we gotta, we gotta, we gotta get lunch, we gotta compare notes. And my, my point is, is that truth emerges different ways in different groups. Mindfulness is gonna show up in prayer, and it's gonna show up in therapy, and it's gonna show up in mentoring and discipleship. It's gonna show up in different ways. And I think culturally we're more ready for it. Maybe there's, there's some other things that I'm Oh, yeah, about. yeah. Culturally we're more ready for it. Why? Someone's gotta help me out, Reese. <laughs> okay, I, I set you up a little bit, but, but yeah. I just feel like we're right on this yeah. this verge of embracing mindfulness and contemplative prayer yeah. because of the social media slash smartphone culture yes which really it's it's like the it's like the anti-vaccination right or it's the vaccination to nobody's it. being it's like, really present right if now. you can <laughs> yeah if you can put the phone down and be present mm-hmm. and he, and here's a tool that will really 
enable you to do that. I see a connection, and I actually see a little bit of an uptick in interest in it, but I think we haven't even seen the beginning. I bet you the next five years, people who grew up with these smartphones and in social media are going to be turning and looking for a solution to, I can't get my mind into the now. It's right. lost in the future and lost in the past. At neurodevelopmental, we are changing our brains with technology. And uh, there's a lot of good arguments that that is not a bad thing, but there are some outlying research that... I think that concerned. remains to okay. be seen, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let me phrase it this way. It is a giant experiment yes, on an it entire is. generation. And the projections are saying, probably not bad. But we're also crossing our fingers on that. <laughs> So, I'm depends not on sure how you I'm measure. I'm with that gamble. So yeah. meanwhile, <laughs> I will not give my kid a smartphone yeah. for as long as I can. Oh. <laughs> well, um, well, so this is only a four. fascinating <laughs> question, Ted. And I, I have thought about it a little bit, probably not nearly as organized of a manner as I would have liked. But so it sounded like you're asking what's the overlap, the crossover be between clinical mindfulness and spirituality, contemplative prayer. And I would definitely want to say there there is an overlap. I'm thinking about... Uh, what I'm learning about Orthodox Christianity as I'm on oh, that that's journey. That's right. You're attending Orthodox we Church. We are, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> uh, so I want to say mindful. I don't know that they would call it mindfulness, but this idea of being fully present, fully engaged is really important. And so you walk into an Orthodox Church, and it's the whole environment is constructed specifically to engage all five senses. There's uh. stuff to look at. There's there's stuff to smell. You know, there's, there's movements, you know, there's, you know, when you're partaking of the sacrament, there's, you know, something to eat. Uh, and so your whole body is engaged. All of your senses are engaged. And prayer, dis prayer disciplines are a very prominent aspect of the tradition. And I want to say, I think this is an orthodox thing that I've heard, but that they'll say the, the demons work in the past and the future. But when you're in the present, it's, it's safer. Like all the temptations, all the distress come from getting preoccupied with worry about future stuff that hasn't happened or past stuff that has happened. But the discipline is to remain fully in the present where there is more peace or something. I think I'm saying that right. Yeah, no, that's great. You know, I went to Italy and Greece years ago on one trip back to back. And I remember the exact moment and the exact feeling I felt when I walked into my first Greek Orthodox church in Greece. And I think the reason is because it engaged all five senses immediately and imprinted on my mind. I mean, I had previously been to the Vatican for the first time. I had been to numerous Roman Catholic churches, and I don't remember walking in. But I rem remember walking into that Greek yeah. Orthodox church. The smell, every, everything about it was engaging my senses. Multi-sensory yeah. is more imprinting. Yeah, I, I'll never forget it. Never forget it. And this it. is a good advice for parents who are trying to get their kids to help them learn more. <laughs> 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 Give them a marker and a pencil and a pen. <laughs> Let them write what about puppies? <laughs> I'm trying to train my puppy right, right. now. And maybe uh, some carrot sticks. Yeah, right. But, but really, I, mean, like, uh, I learned as somebody who has every learning disability. I have, I have 11 learning disabilities. I'm a very functional adult, by the way. Very, very bright person, I'd like to say. Uh, but I have 11 learning disabilities. Um, I learn by writing in everything that I read. So I don't own a Kindle, and I don't read from a screen. I read from paper. I printed 700 pages today because I have to write in it. There's 100 mediums where I could have read that, but I have to print it. And I do believe that even though I need to do that in order to integrate that information, it doesn't mean that someone who learns normally can't also learn better doing that. Yeah, so. yeah, that's great. I, In the whole 50 books this year thing, um, I'm reading every single one yeah. like in my hands. I'm not, I'm not re using a screen because I live by the screen at work. Yeah. And there's something, I'm going to use the word, here it goes, therapeutic, <laughs> about yes. holding a book. Yeah. 
it's it's visceral and it actually well, and I, it's actually healing. I would, I would healing. even encourage you to carry a highlighter and a pen. Uh, make, we'll see the the, the perfectionist <laughs> part of me can't stand a mark of the book, but so, I might get there uh, one yeah. of these days. I, I, <laughs> I know you can do it, Ted. I believe in you. I have picked up the practice of annotating my books as I read them, especially yeah. when I was reading for teaching. I would do that, and even now I I, I annotate like all my books. And my my thought is so that there's okay, hope for me. Right, and my thought is that they shouldn't lose their resale value. Yeah, it should be a bonus feature. When <laughs> right. I put these up on Amazon, that, there I can you say, go. here's this, this was book, annotated annotations by included. Yeah, and especially, right. you know, if Lots we become rich and famous through the podcast, then they'll become collector's <laughs> items. <laughs> That's fantastic. I love it. Right. So, Ted, we have wandered very far from practice management, but I love it. And yes, we've but it's developed been at least four other podcasts, which we will have to do. So we'll come back. <laughs> but before we wrap up, two, two quick thoughts. Uh, quick thought for the clinicians who are working in any sort of clinical setting where they have a practice management team. What is a gesture, small or large, that a clinician could show to show, hey, practice management clinical team, I see you. Thank you. Short of bringing you flowers. Oh, what a great question. <laughs> you know, I didn't study therapy. I'm not a clinician. And I know that. And I think that sometimes I just want the benefit of the doubt that I do know what I'm doing in my field. I think that that's one of those things where I come into a mostly clinical setting. As a guy who doesn't know anything about clinical, I know about data. I know about organizational theory. I know about practice management to a degree. I know about financial model. I know how to connect a financial model to a clinical model and make it sustainable. I don't know about the clinical stuff. And so I extend the benefit of the doubt to clinical staff, and I, I hope that they would extend the benefit of that to me because I know my, my title and my background isn't as common in these organizations and fields. I know that kind of the new guy, right? But a, the small gesture would just be, give me a shot and trust me that I know my part of things, the, the business operations of things. And I really do want to put the client first, just like you do. We're all, we're all about the same thing. That seems really reasonable. So fellow clinicians, I adjure you. <laughs> if you're clinical, give your administrative staff the benefit of the Hopefully doubt. Hopefully nobody I work with is actually listening <laughs> to this going, oh my gosh. And then last thought, if, uh, so speaking to the student, the prospective student who is maybe having second or third thoughts about, do I really want to be a therapist? You're going to say, hey, consider practice management because blank. Yeah, consider practice management because uh, it's important too and because not everybody is meant to be a therapist. I wasn't. And uh, so I'm glad I found this field. And I think that there's more than one way to help. Definitely going to be way more clinicians uh, in the field than practice managers, and that's fine. But, but what I do also helps clients. And I think that's, that's really satisfying to me. Yeah, I wouldn't be uh, in my industry if I didn't have administrative help. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm still figuring out how long I will last without it. So. <laughs> you can do it, Reese. I can do as it, As soon yes. as you find your feet. As soon as I have an income, I will hire an assistant. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you again, uh, dear listener, for following us. And again, if anybody has any connections to Richard Rohr, he is always invited on our podcast. It's, a st it's an open invitation, it's an right? Open he, invitation, he could even yes. set the day and time, yes, right? We'll, we'll let him pick. We'll come to him. I might All come right. in on a day, not a Thursday. So not on a Thursday. Otherwise, please do uh, feel free to rate and review our podcast on iTunes and on SoundCloud and continue the conversation by leaving comments and emailing us. We'd love to hear from you. And we will be back next time with more Smart Counsel. Please be sure to rate and review the podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud. We love your feedback. And let's keep the conversation going. Follow Smart Council on Facebook at Smart Council Podcast, on Twitter at Smart Council 601, and you can email us your questions and comments and feedback at smartcouncilpodcast at gmail.com.
Joshua Moore can be found on the web at neurofeedbackcare.com. And Reese Pissimio can be found on the web at newpatterncounseling.com. Our theme music is by Nate Botsford. Our logo design is by Thomas Moore. This episode was mastered by Julie Patterson. Smart Council has been produced by Reese Pissimio and Joshua Moore.